Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello, and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rivka Rivera. And I am Frank Capello. <laughs> and we are here. We are here. I'm, I'm overcompensating right now for how tired I am. I just got back from my best friend's bachelor party in upstate New York, which was this past weekend, with um, one of our dear mutual friends. Um, and yes, I'm very, very tired now. You did not sleep much. Uh, yeah, didn't sleep a ton, not as much as I would have hoped, and just like was just doing stuff all the time. And I'm just well. You were also the organizer because you are the best, the best man. I am. I was. So yeah. So just a lot of a lot of planning, a lot of work, and then just you know a weekend full of activities. And I'm 35 now. That like that take <laughs> that that on its own takes it out of me. But <laughs> it was great. We went fly fishing because wow. apparently upstate New York has some of the best fly fishing in the country, and it was very fun. It's very relaxing. Fly fishing, I'm sure there's an anti-capitalist angle there because it's sort of doing nothing, right? Yeah, it's a lot of doing nothing. And we found out that most of the fly fishing up there is not to keep. It's catch and release. It's just sport, mm. um, which is kind of anti-capitalist. It's like it's like I don't need to I don't need to accumulate and hoard all of these fish. I just need to poke them in the mouth and. <laughs> I just want to torture them just a little bit. Yeah, I just want to give them a little, a little lip piercing. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was great. How was your weekend? It's good. I'm doing like a very. My partner are doing like staycation. Like I feel like this is the summer of like very New York summer because I'm just my work schedule's not. There's not really any time to just go away for a weekend. So I'm like embracing Brighton Beach. We went to Brighton Beach. It was mm. awesome. Some Coney Island, you know, Brooklyn beaches, which I love. The Bro- I, I love the Jersey Shore beaches the most, but I do love some Brooklyn beaches. So they're so convenient. It was just nice to get some sun. I've just been working so much. I just haven't gotten any sun. So nice to slow down a bit. We also before last weekend, we got to hang out and have dinner with a friend of the show. One of our favorites, uh, Harvey Kay. Uh, Harvey was in town and was like, you guys want to meet up for dinner? And we were like, absolutely we do. And it was such a lovely time. Is your first time meeting Harvey? Oh, it was amazing. It was, um, Harvey's written, for those of you who don't know Harvey, look Harvey up. Also, if you haven't listened to our Newsy, Newsy's episode, Harvey is our guest on the Mm -hmm. Newsy's episode. It's one of my favorites. And Harvey's written many, many books, including he's just an incredible scholar on Marxism And also just labor and just all these things. So sitting down with Harvey, you get a lot of information, a lot of like the tangents Mm -hmm. are my favorite part. They're just and I'd be like, I'm sorry, I ended up like over here. And we're like, that's okay. We're with you. And even if we're not like, we'll figure it out. We'll catch the like hitchhiking over to the next thought. Yeah, it's like it's like scrolling through a Wikipedia page and like you keep clicking on different links and you're like, well, now I want to know about that. Now I want to know about that. But like the most fun Wikipedia page is Harvey. It was great. Yeah. But before we get to our conversation, we wanted to do a little update on the ongoing uh, Writers Guild strike, or really sort of all of the entertainment guilds. So we've talked about it a little bit, but SAG-AFTRA, which is the actor guild, was in negotiations with the AMPTP. That's the, that's the producers and the networks, their negotiating body. 
because uh, their contract was going to be up at the end of June 30th. So they're in ne- negotiations. Uh, but then on June 27th, uh, like 300 actors signed this letter to SAG leadership. So then on June 27th, uh, 300 actors signed a an open letter to SAG leadership um, saying that they would rather strike in solidarity with the WGA, which has been on strike for over 60 days now. They'd rather strike than compromise on these big key issues, a lot of which uh, affect all of the guilds. Um, so this, this was actors like Kevin Bacon, Quinta Brunson, Glenn Close, Chelsea Handler, Jennifer Lawrence, Mark Ruffalo, Meryl Streep. And this is just one part uh, from the letter I want to read. Quote, this is not a moment to meet in the middle, and it's not an exaggeration to say that the eyes of history are all on us. We ask that you push for all of the changes we need and the protections we deserve and make history doing it. If you are not able to get all the way there, we ask that you use the power given to you, the membership, and join the WGA on the picket lines for our union and its future. This is our moment. And then a, uh, a couple of days later, it was then signed by over 1,700 actors, including SAG after President Fran Drescher, which people are like, OK, this is an interesting development because like truly people, I think we're thinking that Fran, who I believe is like a little bit more of like, a, you know, moderate, maybe even like leans a little conservative, like she, that people were worried she was just going to take the deal. And there were rumors that uh, WGA leadership had been pressuring uh sag leadership to take the deal because the 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 directors guild i know i'm talking a lot but this is just you know no this is fascinating the directors guild uh they made a deal about a month ago uh the leadership so and a lot of you know the wga was pissed they were like okay you could have you know not taken the deal in solidarity and then we we would have all the potentially all the unions together and then uh on june 23rd the membership the rank and file uh, they had all voted and they ratified that contract with 87% voting in favor. So the Directors Guild is done. It's out. They have taken their contract. I don't know if there's a way for them to, if if it comes to it, need to strike in solidarity. Um, so, yeah. So this is where we're at now with SAG. And SAG and the AMPTP have uh, decided to extend their negotiating deadline to July 12th. So Hmm. that's, (laughs) I think that's all of the catch up to where we are. God, it's just like solidarity is the way, right? Mm -hmm. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. How are you feeling as a still active SAG member? Yeah, I'm ready to, ready to strike. I mean, it seems we've talked about this before. It just seems like, oh, it's very, I guess it's very like the insanity of climate change. You're like, there is no other option mm-hmm. and pretending like there is is so silly but we'll we'll continue to do it i guess i guess we're kind of a silly species sometimes uh, a lot of the times i would Most say of the time. and sometimes it's like silly haha and sometimes it's like silly uh you're gonna get yourselves killed and then sometimes we're the best and sometimes we're the best but this was i mean one thing they really highlighted in this actor letter was that if they concede if them and like the WGA end up conceding on some of these really kind of big key issues of like streaming residuals and AI, then they will set, they will be setting themselves up for a future where they always are playing from behind and don't have any leverage against the studios. So it's basically like 
this is the moment to not give away your rights. And if you cave on this, like we'll pro it'll be very, very difficult for us to get these rights back in the future. So I think my like my the main thing I'm thinking right now is just about how in general and in, in politically on the left, um, like a lot of the critique of AOC and the what do we call them? Oh, the squad. <laughs> The squad. My, the squad of but just like all, just how much like in all of these decisions how much fear there is and i get it like the even yes. in the decisions around like vote blue no matter who just like the fear of losing the bare minimum when they're like there's just so much fear and like we're just at a moment in time in all places of like we just got to take that fearless or courageous not fear but like we got to take that brave leap because mm -hmm. it's just like standing on the edge of something that's deteriorating, being like, I'll just hold on. At least I can hold on to the edge a little bit longer and pretend like maybe by some force, by some miracle, it'll like stop. It's not going to stop. Yeah. But I do. I recognize the fear of like, well, is it going to get worse if we make a brave choice? That ideology is really strong. And I just think, again, we talked about this at the, like, we've talked about this over and over, but like, there's a place of like, there's that collective trauma, that collective, like, it takes so much, it's going to take so much for us to move in that brave space forward. But it's exciting that potentially SAG will do the right thing. What you just said made me think of like acting from that fear based place. It's a thing we see in a lot of our politics. But recently, uh, after these new Supreme Court rulings, someone asked, Joe Biden, uh, again, hey, would you ever expand the court? Would you ever add more justices? And his response was basically, basically like, we're not going to do that because if we do that, then like, you know, then who knows what will happen with the court? Then like people might not might lose even more. People might lose even more faith in the court. And he's all about like norms and not not bucking the system. That's what it is. Yeah, bucking um, the system. He's, uh, he's cool with norms because norms always worked out for him. He's an old white guy. Like, yeah, of course you're cool with norms. It's his own version of like that sort of make America great again is like it's not too dissimilar than like let's let's just like keep things back to like the norms as they were. Yes, and it's also completely fear-based and it's like he's operating from this place of like, well, you know, we don't want to make the court seem illegitimate and like we got to be careful. We can't like yeah. we can't push too hard. Otherwise, people people are going to think that this is like a liberal coup and oh, no, no. But it's like uh, th this court is month by month, just like stripping away some of the most important rights that we have in this country. And the fact that like him and Democratic leadership's like response is like, no, we don't want to get too extreme now. We don't want to get too extreme. Meanwhile, everyone's over here is just like, the fuck are you doing? Like, do anything. Do the fucking, do fucking anything. So, yeah. It's, it's, wow. You found it in was, you. After the right whole <laughs> bachelor party, you just found it in you. Way to go. This is good. This is good. That's going to carry me through the rest of the day. Good. On that note, we should get to our movie because it's a great conversation. I'm excited to share this. But before we do, we just want to let you know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. Yes, we perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we are trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we don't sell ads on this show. Instead, we rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you will be directly supporting this show. 
You could also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast app. It takes two seconds, and it's super helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, and we really appreciate it. We're going to take a break, but we will be right back with our discussion on A Soldier Story with Jason Miles. All right, we are very excited today to be joined by Jason Miles. Jason is the host of the This Is Revolution podcast and a columnist for Sublation Magazine. He's also a musician that spent years recording and touring with the bands La Fin Absolute du Mont and most recently Bitter Lake. Jason is also a video essayist with a feature-length project due out later this year. Uh, Jason Miles, welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no for Thank you. Wow, I didn't I didn't realize you were gonna be whipping out the soundboard this, no, this quickly. I'll stop. I won't. There's <laughs> there's very inappropriate sounds on here for the show that I do. This is revolution. That's the only appropriate thing that I have loaded in here, probably. Well we we could test that out now later I'm, on. Now I'm curious. Nope. Yeah. yeah. Nope. 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 Okay. <laughs> no. I don't want to get you guys in the trouble that I have found myself in. That is the with. best plug for your show, though. Yeah. I'm like, uh, <laughs> stop <laughs> recording. <laughs> and yeah, it's all right. We're, we're allowed to do whatever we want on here. You know, you no so one... you say, mm -hmm. and then you invite me on and there becomes a whole new set of rules. And then the CIA shows up at your house. <laughs> you uh, wish it was the CIA. It's just your boss. Like, why did you do that? <laughs> um. Jason, so we we met just very recently, moments ago. Um, I'd love to, for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, the the work you do, uh, yeah, the podcast. Yeah, what's sure. your sure? Um, unlike most people that want to have a background of books that they've read or, or reading, or it just looks real cool to have behind you, I have a background of places I've visited and played um, as a touring musician which uh, a lot of that definitely shapes the way um, I see the world. Uh, the show that I do, this is Revolution Podcast, literally was a lyric in the song. I lived in a place called Soundwave Studios. And if you're familiar with the movie, Sorry to Bother You, um, a lot of the sets, majority of the sets were built in that large warehouse facility in West Oakland. Um, oh, hell yeah. The the scene where, they're, where the main character is driving down the street and there's like homeless encampments that was nothing was staged for that. It was just a <laughs> shot because mm -hmm. that's what the street looked like. It actually became the site of the largest homeless encampment in the city that uh, sadly just got cleared. So a lot of the work that we do on the show, especially me personally, um, talks about that population because I also worked with them mm. um, and, and, and I, I lived in this warehouse that you weren't supposed to live in. Uh, so it was a music rehearsal recording studio that also posted tons of, of music videos because it was just kind of this spot in the middle of the hood that you could do whatever you wanted in. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. It is what it was. <laughs> and I and I lived there for, for some time amongst tons of musicians. And I thought when my band, Better Lake, wasn't touring, it would be cool if we interviewed some of the people and I can interject some politics into our music discussion. And the band didn't really see value in it. They were like, that ah, doesn't really seem like it makes sense. <laughs> and uh, I just kept doing it by myself. And here I am now, you know, living in Mexico. And the show is 
It's doing all right. It's doing all right. That's amazing. Um, and also not super surprising that, you know, maybe your bandmates were like, well, that doesn't actually provide us with any immediate value. Like, <laughs> uh, like how, how do we commodify this? You know what I mean? So, you know, it was, it was in a, a moment where people were still doing the thing where they're like live streaming practice. And me personally, I was like, I don't think anybody really cares too much about people. They don't know that well, but literally outside of our door while we'll be recording the show would be bands like a story so far if you're familiar with like pop punk bands like that and then if you walked out in the hallway you could hear lenny williams from tower of power you know doing still a young man and um uh, Dwayne wiggins from tony 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 who also helped put together the second iteration of destiny's child walked in on a practice once and got a video made for us so it it was a really interesting place to be in and and all of my musical heroes, regardless of genre, I'd always meet there and see there. Mm. So I was kind of like doing what I do now on the show. I was doing constantly all the time with with people in the in the facility. The owner let me have like a little bootleg coffee shop in the back and this kind of little secret nook of the place. So it, it was a place. It was a really cool place. And uh, I thought it would be neat to talk to some of these people and, and air conversations that I got to have um with them in this really cool location and it, it's the show didn't go that way it kind of immediately took off in a whole political route but i still get to have some music shows here and there were you in these conversations jason did you find that you were always just naturally talking about politics was it something that you consciously wanted to bring into your conversations around music what was that experience and that journey for you i think if you if you think about the the whole like uh, I I don't like to talk politics. Most people say that because you're going to say something that's going to kind of rock their worldview. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And playing the music that I played, I played like weird, experimental, punky metal, industrial. Like you name something and it's in there. And so I wasn't always around the lefty kids <laughs> there's a lot of times and and i and i played in a lot of the, what we call flyover countries so I, I wasn't always in friendly territory so to speak and my my group le fin absolute du monde was me and my my ex who is a canadian woman who who didn't have that good of a understanding of u.s racism so we were constantly kind of in uncomfortable territory but people for whatever reason felt very comfortable to talk to us about how they felt 2012 was kind of a really frightening year where people really felt comfortable you know saying how they felt about the uh, the obama administration so these were kind of conversations that people were having um and also dealing with bands that were somewhat political because, um, again, a lot of the hardcore punk bands of the first wave of the 80s are there. Um, so for the most part, people really don't have a problem talking about about the, their world views. Um, it's just kind of how you phrase things, right? Like, I, I don't walk around with a shirt that says, I am a this. Um, we were just, my host and I were recently on Katie Halper's show, and she was trying to make us say we were black Marxists. And I was like, nah, dude, we're not. We're not going to be part of any gang. Like, I'm gang free. 
That makes sense. And I mean, I am not a musician, but I have hung out with some musicians occasionally. Uh, I worked at a pizza place in LA and it was a very, very like grungy. They played a lot of like rock and punk and shit. Um, so they metal spot? Metal, yeah. What was the um, spot? The pizza place? Yeah. I don't is know it, if I is should... it gone now? No, it's definitely still there. Um, I don't oh, if you don't want to say that's fine. If you don't, no, say I don't that. want. Yeah, I'm not that's trying fine. to give it any free advertisement. I fucking hate that place. Yeah, oh, then F- and we've also F- talked F- a lot of shit about this place on this. Show. Oh, yeah. then double F. I, you know, I still go to L.A. to see a lot of the my friends that do this podcasting work live in L.A. So uh, I just didn't know if it was a place that we should go or we should still just keep going to the rainbow and reliving the 80s. <laughs> do that. But the one thing I always picked up from those dudes is like they they might not have been political in the sense that we're talking about, like, you know, speaking about politics. But there is there was a very anti-establishment current <laughs> that ran through that uh, through those. It was mostly guys. But like so I found that if I if I kind of entered in conversations through that lane i could they'd be more receptive to like maybe that turning into like a full-on political conversation oh yeah yeah. i I, when i write i try to write around music and pop culture because i think that's the easiest way to talk to people about the world politics racism any ism you want (laughs) i feel that there's a way to explain it i try to find a way to explain it through pop culture my most recent column in sublation is called stakes is high um, are we addicted to the spectacle? Uh, I stakes as high as a De La Soul album from 96. And uh, they were popular kind of in the news at the time. And so I just listened to their whole discography and started, you know, writing this out. And I have another one called Virtual Insanity, which is a Jamiroquai song. I know that one. And every, and, and, and every, and every chapter in the, in the, in the stuff I write is usually a song title from the group. So I'm working on a new one where um, every chapter is a song title from the uh, the soundtrack from the movie Pump Up the Volume. Oh, I love that. Everybody Knows, and it's and it's about uh, the way we view authenticity, kind of using Millie Vanilli as a backdrop. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. Okay, I can't wait to get into the conversation about this film. Before we do, two things I have to say, because you brought up your background and we're with a musician, I'm like... You said that. I was like, I don't like I have this guitar in my background and people are always like, do you? Play? And I'm like, no, I do. I don't not. I don't like to have stuff out because people always want to ask you questions about, oh, what kind of this is that? What kind of this do you use? And do you play guitar? And you're a woman, too. So everyone's going to double question like, oh, do you play? Do you know how? I'm like, no, this is the equivalent of a Zoom background. Like, I like <laughs> that was purchased at some point during the pandemic, you know? um let's jump into this movie because i was really excited to watch this and i'm excited to discuss this with you uh you chose what the hell is this movie well yeah yeah, but that's sometimes the (laughs) bad i I was like i was thinking I was, I was like, how the fuck have I never heard of this movie? This is this I was is wild. All the movies. Do you know how many times I wrote it and erased it? There were so many movies I wrote and erased. And then I was having a discussion actually with um, author and academic and good friend Toure Reed, and he was giving me one of his Touratorials, we'll call them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on his feelings of this movie. Um, and it is, and my, also my co-host is one of his favorite movies and we played it on our channel. We do a movie night on discord on our discord channel and we did this on movie night and people really, really dug it. So I hope you guys really, yeah, I can't wait to discuss this. 
So for, for all of you, I don't think we said the movie yet. So we watched A Soldier's Story, which is a movie that was released on September 13th, 1984, directed by Norman Jewison, written by Charles Fuller, based on his 1981 Pulitzer Prize winning play, A Soldier's Play. And the film stars Howard E. Rollins Jr., Adolph Caesar, Art Evans, Denzel Washington, David Alan Greer, and Larry Riley. The budget for this movie was $6 million and it made $21.8 million. And it was set in 1944, the story of Captain Davenport, a black army investigator played by Howard E. Rollins, who travels to a remote military base in the heart of Louisiana backwoods to investigate the mysterious murder of Sergeant Waters, played by Adolph Caesar, who's also black. Once he arrives, Davenport discovers an army regiment, an entire community that strictly adheres to the violent and oppressive Jim Crow laws of the Deep South. What's originally believed to be a racially motivated murder develops into a much more complicated mystery dot 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 we will discuss all of that i i hope you guys enjoyed the murder mystery of the movie the 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 racial ramifications can can be can hit you in the face really hard but a half hour in you're like this is just a good murder mystery that's interesting that you bring that up because i was most compelled by like all like all of the racial ramification like that component was the thing that was really for me keeping this kept driving the story forward. Uh, but before we get into that really fast, a, just a little bit of historical context for when this movie was released. We like to let the audience know what was happening in the world when these, you know, when these movies came out. So this is 1984. Uh, this is the end of President Ronald Reagan's first term and uh, his election for his second term. Yay! Uh, in <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Our favorite. Uh, in January, he announces that the United States will begin the development of a permanently crewed space station and invite international space agencies to join the project, a concept which will eventually become the International Space Station. Um, in March, teachers at a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, are charged with satanic ritual abuse the of McMartin school children. Trial. Did you guys ever talk about the McMartin trial? We haven't in depth. Um, uh, should also be noted that the charges were later dropped uh, as completely unfounded. So there's a little. QAnon has a lot of roots in the McMartin trial. Oh wow, really? Yeah. That I mean, that makes, that sense. makes sense. Like the, sa the satanic panic. It's another movie. That if you guys want to talk about an interesting movie, there's a documentary about it. I think it's called McMartin, starring mm. Henry Thomas. Um, from E.T.? From E.T., yeah. Yeah. He plays the kind of creepy uh, older son that the woman had. Those people lost everything. That trial took like 10 years. One of the most expensive trials in California history. Um, but there, when QAnon first started coming up, McMartin was always looked at as, well, this is a failure of what you guys keep talking about with these child abductions. And so they started to spin a new narrative that no, 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 no. There's things that were left out of that trial that were true that you never heard about, which of course isn't true. Those kids, you know, sadly were forced into making up, you know, so many different things. Oh God. D d demon sacrifices, kids getting flushed down toilets. 10 years. Fucking Ten absurd. Years. Also this year, uh, Bruce Springsteen releases Born in the USA, and the Summer Olympics happen in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, Tom Bradley. Yeah, so that's 1984. Jason, the first thing we like to start off with is asking our guest, why did you choose this movie to talk about on this podcast? I found you guys through the shorts on on Instagram, I think. And the 
first thing I saw you guys did was, I think it was when Harry met Sally. Was it when Harry met Sally? Or, oh, or, you've or, got mail. You got mail. Sorry, there's Say, so many of you them. know <laughs> that came out. In How that could you mistake the do? Yeah, Meg Ryan was very busy during the eighties. Yes, she was. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And when I was thinking of movies, like I was telling you, there's definitely a bunch that go through my mind, and I try to find some that aren't necessarily the norm that you would watch because there's some that just hit you over the head, right? You know, don't look up is message. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's not bad. It's just, you understand what it's about. Um, Robocop is something that I think people have talked about, you know, quite a bit about its, its critique of neoliberalism. Um, if you didn't know that, then watch Robocop. It's a great critique of neoliberalism. <laughs> um, uh, a lot of those early Verhoeven movies are even, you know, watch Total Recall. That's a hell of a critique on uh, privatization. Um, so A Soldier's Story isn't necessarily an over-the-top view on capitalism, but I also think that we can talk about the capitalist world in which we live, and we need to be able to have conversations that can get under the nails and maybe dispel good guy, bad guy narratives especially in the way that we see things. I, it, I just want everyone to know that's watching. This is coincidental that we're doing this on Juneteenth when they asked me to come on. There was a bunch of dates you had to pick. And this one was open. And I don't think any of us thought, <laughs> oh, it's Juneteenth. No. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all coincidental. Um, but, but, but this movie in particular, I, I think you know, really should hit home for a lot of people, especially when we, when we think about there's a holiday now, Juneteenth, that really comes out of, of the 2020 George Floyd, what some people might call a racial reckoning. So I thought, let's, let's do a show. And there are some myths also too about um, black participation in world wars. I mean, there were definitely black troops in world war one um, as the sergeant, that's kind of his, his whole thing is he fought in the first world war and there was like two battalions and there was a battalion that fought with Americans. There was a battalion that fought with the French and the battalion that fought with the French had a much better time <laughs> than the ones that fought with Americans. So that's why you hear the Sergeant often wax poetic about, you know, his time in the army and France and how wonderful France was and the women and, and this, that, and the other. And also to the GI Bill. Also, you know, even before we even get to World War II, you have people like W.E.B. Du Bois that actually feels like the, the, the Negro, the black man in the army is going to really, you know, be a racial reckoning that can, you know, get us over a, a certain hump. So when we think about like the GI Bill moving forward, there was also a big push to have more black people sign up to get the benefits of the GI bill. And, you know, it, it's, it's a mixed bag in world war two. We can't say that everything is, is all great and everything is all horrible. Um, the GI bill also helped a lot of black men get politically active because now they're literally seeing that if we're going to have truly systemic change, it will go through the federal government. And, you know, people like Medgar Evers comes out of military service and the GI Bill. So I thought this was an interesting movie 
to watch because it's just a great movie. The people that you named are just some of the people in the movie. Wings Hauser's in that movie, you know, B movie legend. Um, Robert Townsend. Robert Townsend, movie, yeah. Uh, early in his career. Um, Adolf Caesar, for those that don't know, he's the dad in Color Purple. He's Danny Glover's father's character in Color Purple. Great actor. Uh, Patty LaBelle. Stage. I don't know if I mentioned Patty LaBelle. Patty LaBelle is in the movie. Yeah, singing. I mean, unbelievable. It's, opens it's, the movie. A, opens the movie just like, you know, setting you up for this, you know, this is the South. And again, I, I actually didn't just tour in the South. I also worked in the South on oil rigs. Um, which, yeah, that's what I always say whenever I think about that. Movie. <laughs> um, like, why did I do that? And so, <laughs> so I have uh, a fondness for the deep South. I know what that disgusting sweat <laughs> is like that the, that the actors have throughout the movie. This is supposed to be kind of before AC. Um, but the movie isn't just a story of racism, right? It's it's a story about class. And I think we can't talk about the capitalist world in which we live in if we don't talk about class. And there's there's a way that the uh, sergeant's character, played by Adolf Caesar, who just, just chews up every scene he's in. Just, I, I love him in this movie. Denzel, also a young, fiery Denzel, in this movie is great. Uh, Howard Rollins is great. Um, the way the sergeant, like when, when you see the sergeant, when you're introduced to his character, besides him getting killed in the beginning, it, it starts with, it's one of those movies that starts with him getting murdered and you don't know who did it. But uh, when you see the sergeant be kind of kind to characters that he's a little meaner to later, like the CJ character, that's the, he calls him a Geechee, which is a derogatory term to, black people from certain parts of Mississippi. Um, he loves him when he first meets him. He's like, oh, did you play at this place? Do you know so-and-so? Oh, yeah, I bet you did. He had no problem with him, right? I've, I've seen some people say it was a, it was a colorist take, and, and I don't think that was the case at all. I definitely think it's a story of class that we just don't like to talk about because people might look at the sergeant's character as like a self-hating man. And he may have some of that in him to a certain degree, but he also understands in his mind, the importance of, of getting out of this economic slump and he's in the deep South. And you know what you see in the deep South? Poor ass white people. Right? <laughs> you yeah. see white people that short drop that, you know, the great country singer, to, to Tammy Wynette, you know what she did before she was singing? She's picking cotton. You know, that's, that's what her and George Jones would bond over. They're, they're growing up dirt, freaking poor in the South. So he understands that, you know, your poverty level uh, isn't why you don't have an entryway in, right? He is a little bootstrappy. Very much. That was one of the first first notes I wrote down. I was like, "This is this is the bootstraps guy for sure." A, l- a little bit, a little bit bootstrappy, but he also understands. You know, he, what does he say? He said, "My dad couldn't read or write, but he made sure we did." And mm-hmm. and now my son's not going to go to the army because I'm taking this sacrifice so he can have an opportunity. Even Howard Rollins' character when he meets the uh, the white the white captain. He goes, where'd you go to law school? Uh, Howard. Well, was your family rich? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the GI Bill opened up uh, the ability for, for black men that did have a high school education. Let's keep that in mind. And white men that had a high school education, either get, you know, get your GED or get a college education. So black colleges, historically black colleges, um, just blew up at the time with the GI Bill. So many cats couldn't get into uh, to standard you know, four-year universities. And so he was like, oh, go to this very prestigious school, Howard. Yeah, I think there's so much you're saying, Jason, that I just like resonated a lot, especially the first time seeing it. And my experience, my way in was, I mean, the performances from everyone in this were so astounding that it was... I mean, it was hard to not watch it and be like, there's, so, you know, and then be like, wait, what's happening? Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow, it's like really good, like, good acting, you know, and I think there's so much bad acting now that like <laughs> when you see good acting and this was also this, I love stories that were, I love plays. And so I love films that are like clearly plays, even though sometimes people are like, and this is not the medium. They didn't, you know, and you can tell this is clearly, <laughs> this to me was like a play, you know, and I think maybe that takes away from some of the, I think that's either you enjoy that there was a lot of that murder. There was a lot of certain structural things. And like, I think they had to fix some things because you're like on the stage, they would be doing a lot more talking about and they do these flashbacks that. I actually thought really worked in this in this mm -hmm. structure. Um, but what I loved about to me, the whole thing was brought together by just Sergeant Vernon Waters, who we're talking about, who Adolf Caesar plays and just everything. you. I think everything everyone's saying is true. What I loved about this character is he's so complex that you're like, yeah, he's a little bit of bootstraps, hates himself a little bit, also loves himself a little bit. Also this, also that. And I think that's what made this really compelling watch for me because you just so rarely see that allowed in movies, but especially for movies with black characters like any, you know, there's just never room for that kind of complexity. And this was like and he plays it with like every <laughs> Caesar. He's just eating. You know what I mean? Just like every moment you have a new emotional beat. It was it's a like you have to watch this just for that. The roller coaster. And he plays drunk. Because the movie starts where he's just like close to blackout drunk. And again, the amount of bad performances of drunk. This is I thought this was a great, great performance of drunk. You just you feel that drunk watching. I, I watched this as a little kid when it came on cable. And we used to get this back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> the when cable box HBO, days. <laughs> Yes. The, well, the we had HBO, days. period, because it is no more. Oh, it's no more HBO. It's the max. Um, <laughs> there used to be a little paper thing that was like three pages long, and it was like yay big. And it was a little paper that showed you what was coming on TV. I was the kid that read the newspaper to see what was coming on TV. I begged for the TV guide to see what was coming on TV. I could tell you what time it was by what was on TV. <laughs> that was me as a kid, right? And when this came out, there was, there were the cover was the, the movie poster, which is Howard Rollins. I think it's his name character in his, in his army with the aviators uniform, his dress in his dress uniform. And I was like, what is this? And my dad was like, oh, this is a soldier story. And I didn't know what the fuck it was. And so <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched it with my, with my father the first time. And I just remember kind of being blown away, not knowing I was it probably came out like 85 on cable. I didn't really understand totally what it was, but it was so moving. And I've watched this movie every year since, and I'm 45. And I was probably I was like seven or eight when I came out, like eight or so. And 
it's still moving. I was actually watching it before we went on. And I was like, man, I can watch this movie so many times. And, and Caesar's portrayal, being when he's hurt, especially at the end, no matter, but basically saying something that's a little Afro pessimistic that I don't necessarily agree with 100%. Um, but it makes sense for a movie to be taking place in the Deep South in 1944, um, which is uh, no matter what you do, you're still an N word, right? And it's also interesting how the white colonels and captains want to keep everything under wraps because they everyone believes it's the clan mm -hmm. it's the only thing that makes sense to them mm -hmm. black man with stripes walking around town maybe he got mouthy he was drunk the clan killed him that's just what happens here we want to keep this quiet because we don't want to have an international incident. Or potentially right? it's the other white officers because that that storyline is introduced about halfway mm -hmm. through the movie where it's like, could have been the Klan. It also could have been these couple of white officers over here. But regardless, that is that that scene you're talking about between Davenport when he comes in and the colonel, the first yeah, the first introduction we get into this into this world, into how this investigation is going to go is basically this white colonel telling uh, Captain Davenport, the black investigator who has just arrived on the scene, like, hey, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do this. This, the, your invested, <laughs> basically, basically, yeah, for Louis, basically, like, yeah. your investigation, it's gonna be three days. You're gonna get whatever you need. You're not gonna charge any white people. That's how this is gonna go down. And it Are is. Are you talking about Nivens? Is that Nivens, the main, he's like the main white yeah, guy? The guy that plays the dad in Raising Arizona. That's Colonel Nivens. It's confusing that there's only, yeah, there's Colonel Nivens and then there's Captain Taylor. He's the. Captain Taylor, yeah, yeah. Captain, oh, Captain Taylor, Taylor is like the slightly nicer <laughs> white officer. The first oh. time I saw a Negro, I was 12 years old. <laughs> It, that's Taylor. Well, he's, is he's that a, one Taylor or Nivens? That, that's Taylor. That's okay, Taylor. Taylor, Taylor to Taylor me is, feels is the big like fan of the baseball team. He's like, this is my base. This is if my Taylor was today. Team. Taylor to me feels very like vote blue, no matter who energy. Like that was Taylor was like a little, in, you know, like a little like Taylor also comp complex, like also had me. I didn't know how I fully felt about Taylor. But I did have that moment where I was like, I feel like I, I know where Taylor might sit today. I don't think he'd be a Democrat. I think he'd you be think Republican? a Republican. I think. For a time, I lived with a white family that was not my own who is Republican. Great people. Do you mind if I ask what age range you were during this time? Was I? I was a grown man. I was 30 to Jesus. How long did we live there? 36 or so? So it's, I won't get into the, to the whys and how, how I sure. got there. Um, it's just, it's just not really that interesting, but um, I didn't have like a drug problem and they rescued me at a church or anything like that. It's just, it's way more boring, but uh, we, we became, we became actually really, really close. They're, they're wonderful people. I, I love them to death and, and they would probably echo some of those same sentiments it's it's interesting it goes back to like putting people in boxes you know what i mean yeah yeah like it's easy to think that everyone that may be a republican probably hates brown people like i I've, if i see an american flag on someone's house i'm pr i feel very confident that you hate brown people <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, you know what well, I mean? So I, I, I it has. That. It's become one of those signifiers now. But I do think Taylor had like, yeah, those moments, whatnot. But I just the vote blew. I guess what I got from that was like there was very much a strong and I think it was intentional in the writing. Like 
which I liked about it, the greater context of what that militarization and that army mindset and actually how intentional that is and how the bigger project of capitalism is related to, like you were saying earlier, like you can't separate class, racism, capitalism, militarization, all of this way of thinking from each other. And I thought it was like the play got a lot of that right in some ways because you never forgot the army context. But that's a very like, the the imperial context the imperial right? context yeah. exactly and then that's when i think the vote blue no matter just in that not even in terms of like democrat republican it could be re- vote this no matter what it's more the the vigilant dominant thinking of because we do this therefore we may think these certain things and i thought taylor was interesting cuz taylor would say things that you could almost see in the actors choices like a second just these kind of almost questioning moments of like, I'm saying this, I don't really know what the fuck I'm saying. I think that's why Davenport is such a well-wrought character and like the perfect catalyst to kind of come along and start challenging a lot, pretty much everyone's conception of like what it means to be black in this time, what it means to be a black officer in this time. Cause yeah, he's just like kind of, he's just like running, running loops around Taylor. Uh, he's also a lawyer. Like that, like that's, that's mm-hmm. important to know. Like he's from, I looked into this cause I was like, how does this, how does the, how does the whole lawyer army thing work? It's uh it's Jag, which is, Jag guy, yeah. yeah, especially essentially like the armed forces lawyer wing. Mm-hmm. My God, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> their lawyer. It's, wing. The, it's the legal department for the military. Cause they don't go through <laughs> traditional courts. Thank you. That's a much more eloquent way of saying it than the lawyer. <laughs> the lawyer wing. wing. Um, <laughs> My one big, I had a lot of takeaways, but like the one thing that I was kind of really surprised by was that I had never heard of this film before, especially with the cast that we just laid out. The fact that it is based on a Pulitzer Prize winning play. I was like, how have I never heard of this, this movie before? And was nominated for three Academy Awards. Was nominated three Academy Awards. The conclusion that I arrived at on my own is that this is a really challenging movie for, I think, white people to probably watch. Um, so I don't. Th- so I would imagine that its cultural legacy uh, in white spaces, especially on you know the way that the 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 TV the TV network system has been run and operated for the last forty years, has probably not given this film a lot of airtime, um, which I think is a real shame because I think it challenges a lot of concept a lot of white conceptions of basically how like the different forms that white supremacy can take. Cause that's a, mm. another big thing that I took from this is that this was like, you know, we're talking about how this is like a story about class and that, mm-hmm. you know, capitalism requires racism and a class-based racism to uphold a lot of its oppressive structures. And I think seeing a nuanced, this is a very nuanced story mm-hmm. with a lot of uh, like black dynamism, like baked into all of the characters. Like there's so many different tendencies, so many different perspectives that you're getting. We haven't even gotten to Denzel's character who's basically, I mean, how would you even describe him? He He's like, he's like a very like. That's that's what I am like and why I can't have a regular job. I was, I was as if I was rewatching, I was like, dude, I, I wear glasses as you guys saw before we went on air. And I totally would have said, what kind of black colored man are you? I, I would have said those exact words and i would have fought with my boss yeah because he's very he's very proud he's not afraid to speak his mind and like i mean spoiler alert he ends up we find out uh being the murderer the person who kills Mm -hmm. sergeant waters essentially because sergeant waters has through the course of 
his internalized anti-blackness has uh, scapegoated this one guy in their platoon, CJ, um, and then CJ ends up killing himself because of how terrible Waters is to him. So then in turn, uh, Denzel's character kills Waters because he's like, this is unacceptable. You like, you know, you are now responsible for this person's death. Um, so there's just a, a, so much nuance and so much, like, like you're saying, so much complexity. Um, and Waters embarrassed him. Remember, they got in a fight. Mm-hmm. That was the one, of the entire movie, that was, I was like, I think Denzel's got Waters in this fight. Like, <laughs> they, we, the CJ warns him, he'll fight you dirty. That's that's true. The, the CJ character is an interesting character because it's one that the sergeant has trouble with. On one hand, he appreciates kind of what CJ brings to the table, right? He's He's a pretty nice guy. He's a talented musician. He's a hell of a ball player. You know, you need him to win on your team. And ultimately they say this, this regiment was basically just a baseball team, but CJ's reluctance to kind of maybe have some of the Southern politeness, but not have all of these, as he would maybe say, Geechee ways or Cooney ways. You know, I think the term Coon has really been kind of changed over the years, but I think Waters would view CJ as as a very uh, kind of stereotypical character that he thinks is bad for the this new this new burgeoning Negro that is going to get uh, new life due to the New Deal and a larger entry into the armed forces. So CJ for him is kind of a look back into the past that cannot be right. Mm. Like if we're ever to get some that get there, we have to eliminate these CJs. I don't say any of this to make anything the character did in this movie good (laughs) because the character of the sergeant is a horrible man. But because you see all three dimensions of him, you kind of have a little bit of sympathy for him, right? A little bit. Um, I, I did. I, I can't speak for you guys. I, I did. Absolutely. I did it's, an, it's, it's, and that's a testament to how wonderful the writing is and how nuanced and complex the writing is because it, I did, I did feel that sympathy. I felt, I felt like the Sergeant character was humanized, not in that, like I walked yeah. away being like, Oh, I like that guy. I think he's good. But that I understood where he came from and why he why he holds this perspective. Yeah, I connected with him. I mean, I think anyone watching that's like, I can, I could connect with that total part of a self where you're like, nobody can sit there and be like, I'm all this one way. I'm all this, you know, and that's the best performances. And that's the best art, I think, when you can really connect to all of the selves in a person. Everyone is trying to protect something. Reputations, upward mobility within the service, their men. Everyone is trying to protect something, right? Even the white characters that are problematic outside of Wing's house, <laughs> um, who who beats who beats up the sergeant. To some degree, they think, well, this is just the way it is, right? I'm in the deep south. Some of the you know the first the colonel you meet, I'm from the deep south. I'm in the deep south. You know, segregation now, segregation forever. You know, (laughs) he does everything but says that line. And I think what makes the movie hard to swallow today is that everything is just so overly racialized with kind of comic book characters 
that even movies that we're supposed to celebrate, I did a whole video essay called Same As It Ever Was on kind of contemporary black cinema and the way we look at the black exploitation era as this short-lived time. But I'm like, what makes those movies so less exploitive than Wakanda Forever? Hmm. I mean, why does, first of all, why does this advanced society not have guns or lasers? They're still using spears. I don't give a damn if they're like magical metal spears. They're still spears. Why are they fighting on the backs of animals in the savannah of Africa? But they live in a like none of that made sense to me. <laughs> right? Wow. That's offensive. <laughs> we we live in such an advanced society, it's still a monarchy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. And it, and if there's a bloodline that you have to be a part of to ever be part of the ruling class. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. But nobody seems to care. And it's supposed to be this magical land of this is what would have happened had had black people never got enslaved. It's like, oh, there'd still be a monarchy. That kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. And apparently we'd be fighting on animals still. That's weird. Damn, I have never heard this take before. And this uh, is yeah, I'm looking forward right to now. this video <laughs> essay. I, I mean, I think it's similar to so many of these. There's like this big um, post-racial boom with Bridgerton and The Little Mermaid. And I'm... You know, I appreciate oh, yeah. what's there, but I have the same thought watching and people get very mad at me for bringing it up. But I'm like, OK, but like, why are there still servants? Like, why is class still a thing? And we're actually supposed to be like, OK, with it. We're supposed to sell like, we we totally ignore the class. We're just like we just want there to be everyone to be able to be enslaved and rich. But like, we don't care that I'm like, the problem <laughs> is the oppression. <laughs> Like the problem is the oppression, right? Like on all it's uncomfortable ends. To watch. Yeah. If what's the guy? Lin Manuel Miranda. I read an interview with him, and when asked, "Why don't you have slavery in Hamilton?" Mm-hmm. Being that it was a key tenant of wealth for this new country, it's it would be uncomfortable. Just plays into the whole conversation that I think a lot of people are not even aware of those pieces when you talk about. Hamilton. No, and and when you think about like again back to back to your point about like why can't a movie like this resonate today? I think we need overly simplistic narratives mm. about good guys and bad guys that resemble wrestling. I mean, that's my my whole feature length that I've been working on for, for the better part of a year. And now it's in the part that costs money to get done, but <laughs> it's about the way we consume media, and it's called kayfabe, which is you know the wrestler's code of you know never tell people it's. It's, it's fake. And even the way I hear conversations running today around the idea of someone like Cornell West running for, for office kind of makes me go, is that, is this like the limits of your political imagination? Just get another public figure to, to be the, your savior. Like the, the power has to ultimately rest in the people, you know, not these saviors, but mm-hmm. maybe we are so addicted to Marvel movies that we just need a savior that maybe has our iconography on it. And then we'll feel more comfortable with this person in a higher office opposed to us having any sort of a a real uh, political power or movements. You know, we are in a moment of no mass politics and also no mass culture for the for the most part. So where you see France, for example, you know, on fire over uh, an increase to the pension system when SNAP benefits got cut. Did anybody even knock over a garbage can? (laughs) We need to see the political racial burlesque play out in front of us for us to care. I mean, you guys are on the East coast. Everyone was upset about 
Jordan Neely. It sucks to see somebody get killed on a subway like that. The whole thing, you know, we don't have to get into it. But across the country, where I'm from in San Francisco, a young man, a trans man, tried to steal something from the store. Security guard stopped him. They got into a fight. Trans man threatened the security guard. So he's going to stab him and kill him. You know, people always say things when they're mad. And he kind of motioned to the security guard. Security guard shot him, killed him. Security guard's black. Victim is black. DA is a black woman. Mayor is a black woman. Doesn't get the same attention because I can't spin the same narrative. You can't come out and say, it's baked into the soul of America. Right? Is it all self-imposed anti-blackness at that point? The security guard who was, who actually was licensed to carry a firearm had suffered trauma, had seen his own brother get murdered, had drug addicted parents, something I'm familiar with, and probably shouldn't have had a job where he had a gun, but it's an uncomfortable conversation to have because we will always want to oversimplify these conversations with, well, they shouldn't do this. or Oh, maybe we shouldn't uh, stop people for stealing. Okay. That's fair. That's fine. Right. But now you're having what some people are calling a capital strike in places like San Francisco, where you have major stores leaving. So kind of your business center is leaving. A lot of tech companies are leaving. Their leases happen to come up during the pandemic and the easy blame is crime. So unlike the 90s where you did have violent drug crime due to extremely cheap cocaine flowing up and gangs that were kind of a built-in distribution system, so you understand why you need more people to distribute this cheap product that has such a high markup on. You understand the value of territories, right? That crack house could be worth $5 million a month. So... Of course it's going to get robbed. Of course you're going to be fighting over this turf. It just makes sense within this economic paradigm in which we live. That's gone in this context. These kids are robbing shit to buy more Jordans with. They're not building criminal empires off stolen deodorant from Walgreens. But it becomes a main talking point as we're leading into a presidential election and a, and a mayoral and governor election too, where you have these, these democratic governors that were so hard because everybody thought that the, the catch all answer was just, you know, just defund the police. If we defund the police, we abolish the police. It's the catch all answer to everything. Defunding the police didn't stop making George Floyd's right. Here's a man that lived in economic precarity. Maybe it stops him from getting his ass whooped. I'm all for stopping ass whoopings. I've been black in California a long time. Not a big fan of having to deal with the police. Also not a big fan of of, uh, state-sponsored ass whoopings. But is it the catch-all answer to try to even examine something like homelessness and property crime? California spent $17 billion with a B, and we still have, I still say we, even though I live in Mexico now, California still has the highest population of unhoused residents. So what are we doing wrong? What is wrong with the way in which we're seeing these problems, the way in which we're seeing the world, because our solutions, they're not there. I think this is such an important, 
important point that you're making, and it's something that specifically about the oversimplification of these narratives. And something we have talked about on this podcast is the way that films especially will portray uh, these conflicts as a binary, like you're saying, mm. good guy, bad guy, you know, right, wrong, uh, faith versus chance, like whatever. It's, you know, it can, it can, it runs, it runs a whole gamut. Whereas in reality, the solutions, or if you even want to call them solutions, always operate within a very, very complex and nuanced gray area in the middle that is not clean, that is not always going to work the first time, that is, you know, might have some other offset ramifications that we hadn't even considered at the time. Um, and I think just being able to being able to frame these conversations i was gonna say debate but i think i think debates are so fucking stupid i hate i hate i hate debate culture yeah. i hate anyone who's like debate me like shut the fuck up like this what a what a oh, terrible way fun. to <laughs> I, what a terrible way to try to understand someone else or to even get your points across oh, yeah. but i think so no i think this is i think everything you're saying is spot on and i think it's reflected in the way that this movie tells its story yes. which is so nuanced yes. so complex yeah and it's just like it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And every every moment I thought I got like the full story, the full picture, another character was introduced and you're you're getting a bit bit of their perspective and and you know, especially as like as a white dude who grew up on the East Coast, I was like I was like, "Oh, of course there were of course these these people exist. Of course these perspectives exist." Um but like really being kind of the, one of the first times I've seen it portrayed on film so well. If you guys read Catalyst magazine, there's a new a book, whatever, whatever they do. I think quarterly they release a book. And in, in their book, they released uh, a man named Preston Smith. The second has a whole piece from I think it's an excerpt of his book about uh, housing in in America during World War Two. And he was on our show two, three years ago, and it was one of my favorite episodes. And it's one of the, the best books you can get on housing because it's it's a, you know, if you read Rothstein's Color of Law, um, he paints a certain picture that's not a hundred percent true. And in Smith's book, he really takes you inside of of uh, of housing in a in a perspective that I think most people probably didn't look at it as you know like Lorraine Hansberry the woman that uh, wrote uh, Raisin in the Sun famous uh, communist her father makes his living making kitchenette houses for black people hmm. well, black people were still buying homes it wasn't like <laughs> you know it, it wasn't the way we see home ownership blow up for a lot of the white population, but when we think about wealth, it wasn't like those people also woke up one day and had money. They had an entryway into union jobs that took a lot longer for the black population to get into. We can have a whole other conversation about how that happened, you know, deindustrialized cities and by the time Negroes is finally getting into the manufacturing sector. But um I, I the 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 sentiments of the Sarge are echoed in a short piece you can find online. If I can find that, I'll send it to you. We used to play it on the show, but it's a, from a conversation in 1962 that Black people in California are having, middle class Black people in California are having about Black people from the South coming up, and they're like, "We don't want those people in here. Wow, we don't want them in here effing up our good thing." Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so to me, the simplistic view and the more contemporary view is to see everything like that as like internalized hatred Mm. or anti-blackness. I'm not the biggest proponent of that framework as everything I see that I don't like is, is anti-black. Um, and this is coming from someone that actually got told to leave somewhere because of my race. It, it doesn't happen as much as I think people would like it to happen. Racism definitely exists, but it also exists within people that I think other people don't think are supposed to be racist. Mm. Yeah. And in this movie, you really see it played out. Um, I've definitely been around uh, black people in my life that sound very much like the sergeant. They're not very hard to find. Um, you could find them, go walk outside your doors and go into any barber shop in, in a predominantly black neighborhood and you'll, you'll hear those, those same sentiments echoed uh, 50, 60 years later. So... I think that's why that movie is still very relevant today. Again, the acting alone. Yeah. Even if you want to take all the subtext out of it, <laughs> the acting alone is, is worth its weight in gold. Um, I do think it translates into a feature film a lot better than something like fences, which is also interesting. I love the fact you guys named the director because Denzel Washington, there's a famous quote of him that, that I think it has millions of views on social media where he talks about why a black director needed to direct. I think it was fences. I think a black mm-hmm. director directs mm-hmm. fences. Um, but Denzel's in this movie. And then he also does the hurricane, right? Isn't he in the hurricane later? And he is in the hurricane. And, and this the, guy, the Andrew, hurricane. Andrew Jewison directed that. Was it Andrew Jewison? Norman, Norman, Norman Jewison. Norman, Norman. Oh Jewison. God, we're going to have to go back and ADR there's, that. There's a, there's a great, you know, if you like the color purple, that's a Spielberg film. Mm. Right. And I don't remember Denzel. The only person I remember really speaking out about that was Spike Lee. And I have my own, you know, feelings about Spike Lee. Again, if you want to watch, it's 27 minutes long. And I definitely give a little Spike Lee lesson so people can learn where he comes from um, and why I don't really care that much for that dude. But this this movie to me, I think, is, is more relevant now than ever, because these are conversations that were too uncomfortable they're too uncomfortable i think to have because of conversations around class and uh immediately you're called a uh, was it a class reductionist which i think is a really interesting term <laughs> jason i i could speak with you about this stuff all day long i'm learning a ton and i would love to have you back at some point um but we sadly need to bring this conversation to a close but be- so before we go the one of the last things we do is uh we hand out awards for this movie um, we got three awards. We could go through them uh, fairly quickly. You can decide on the spot. Um, the first award is called A Point with a View. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. Ooh. And I know that we just had a whole conversation about, you know, oversimplifying things and yeah. <laughs> and reducing but things. But we're about to, to do it. But we're, we're about to do it right now. I love it. Uh, for me, dude, Henry Rollins' character, the, the investigator. Yeah. Yeah, I, just, I I love I love everything about him. Kind of the fact that he is in a world he doesn't really understand. Right? He's from DC. Mm-hmm. He's he's from the North. He doesn't understand country life. He doesn't understand why people keep looking at him all weird. <laughs> this is just remember to him it was just normal. Remember when this when the when the captain says, "Were your parents rich?" No, 
That's just what black people do where I'm from. Yeah, it goes to him. Absolutely. I'm giving it to Captain Davenport. Same. Okay, our next award is Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in this movie. Mm. Uh, mm. It's definitely going to be that one white mm. officer who beats up Waters. Yeah. Oh, Wings Hauser? <laughs> Wait, which, which one are you going to say? Colonel Nivens. <laughs> Colonel Nivens. Colonel Nivens is also in one of my favorite movies, Raising Arizona. Oh, is he really? He plays, uh, he plays the Arizona man who gets his kid kidnapped. Oh, whoa. Oh, whoa. Okay. Yeah, that's him. Damn. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah I, I, either one of those. Two. I mean, pretty much all the white officers in this movie, except, except, for, ta bro. except for Taylor. <laughs> Taylor is the kind of the least problematic. Taylor got on my nerves. I don't know what it was about he Taylor. He got He's on my nerves. Annoying. I didn't trust him. I again, there was something to me that felt no. I, I totally get it. Very annoying. Very much like a like a white PMC liberal. You know, he'd be that kind. He'd be he'd be the guy today that would be like be like, <laughs> well, yes, I believe Black Lives Matter, but you know, like like why did why did they have to play the music so loud? You know, like that's who. Oh that's yeah, or who data's done. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they they can matter until they date his daughter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Honey, what am I going to tell my bridge club? <laughs> Our last award is a star is scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about, which is going to be hard because I argue there there are a lot of. I'm going to give it to. I don't remember the character's name, but Patty Labelle's character. Ooh, that I think that's like a whole. That is, you know, it's like a whole. What is it like to be a black woman business owner in this time? With all these, time, so, I mean, uh, in this all, establishment, all yeah. Oh, and so confident. Yeah, she had no fear in the whole movie. There's never a moment where she walks around with any sort of uh, fear around all these men in her establishment. It's interesting. And the songs that that she sings, it's interesting. This the role that music plays in this film. It's like that. None of it is superfluous. Like every lyric that they choose where, you know, they're truth telling in every song. And I love that. And again, she's unreal in this. It's the blues. That's what the blues is supposed to do. I'm, I'm going to go with um, Private Henson. I is one of, mm. one of the dudes in the platoon. I don't know what it was. I was just like extremely compelled by his character. He plays he plays piano beautifully he is very distrustful of authority and the actor's performance i was just like really charmed by him so like just ba based on like even though he got like some of the least amount of screen time every time he was on i was like i want to know more about this guy so i'm giving it to private henson interesting there's a character i can't think of the actor's name i think his name is woogie he's like the the guy that ends up running the platoon when the when the sergeant is killed and uh, I, I, I thought his character was interesting, right? Where um, he got his stripes taken. He was trying to get his stripes back. And he's like, I have a family. And you'll understand why I have to do these things because I have a family. And I think he kind of speaks to a lot of people in this country. You know, why, why can't, you know, so-and-so be politically active with me? It's like, well, you know, life is an MFR and it's, it's kicking him in the, in the, in the ass and they're trying to keep a head above water and, and sometimes you don't want to make waves you're just trying to exist hopefully move up enough where you can get out of your precarious situation and and move on you know 
and and I think his care. I think those characters are always interesting because that's that's whoever whatever I'm doing, I'm always talking to that person. I try not to talk to the choir. I try to talk to the person that is least likely to give a damn about anything I'm saying because they're trying to survive. All right. Well, those were the awards. Uh, and the last thing, Jason, before we wrap, we like to talk with our guests about uh, how you choose to practice your anti-capitalism in your day-to-day life. And it could be anything. It could be like a, you know, a practice you engage in, a group you work with. I mean, I, you, I know you have this podcast, so that's already something. So if you want to talk more about that, you can. But whatever that, whatever that uh, stirs in you, that question. You're asking a hard question, and I hope I don't tear up. It was Father's Day recently, and I am a father of four beautiful beige children. And one of them is coming to see me tomorrow. And I think what I try to do with my show, with my writing, with my music, with my life, is to show them another way, try to teach them as much as I can about why I'm not a fan of the system in which we live in, why the system in which we live in is grounding them and their their mother and stepfather to powder and, you know, hope that maybe they're part of the solution to get us out of this because I don't have all the answers. So I guess that's what I do. I just try to dad my way with these four, you know, awesome little people. I mean, the one that's coming is a 24-year-old is a woman, but who wants to get into teaching. Mm. So I'm, I'm excited about that. So maybe, maybe we're, we're headed in the right direction. I don't know, but that's, uh, that's what I try to do. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing awesome. that with us and happy father's day. Yeah. Oh, thank, you, thank you. Jason, where can our audience find you in your work? Uh, every Tuesday through Thursday at 6 PM Pacific time at this is revolution podcast. We definitely live stream on YouTube and on Saturday morning morning for me at 9 a.m. This is Revolution Podcast. Um, we're also an audio podcast wherever you get your podcast. We are in the top 40 of music shows on Apple. Fuck yeah. So that's kind of cool. I didn't put it in there as a political show. I put it in as a music commentary. Smart. That's, that's where you can find me. I also write a column in Sublation Magazine. There should be a new one coming out shortly that we kind of hit on a little bit. Uh talking about our ideas around authenticity using the Millie Vanilli case <laughs> as a great example. So hopefully you guys get that and I'll, I'll send it to you before it comes out so you guys can get it first. That would be awesome. This was such a pleasure to speak with you, to connect with you, to talk about this film. Thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thank you, Jason. Oh, thank you guys for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mvcpod.com. For next week's movie, we'll be watching the 2000 stoner comedy, Dude, Where's My Car? Wow. You don't want to miss that one. You don't want to miss a rewatch on that one. No, you don't. Uh, thanks, everyone. We'll see you later. Bye.